Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all of those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. And Father, we do just thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we work our way through this text. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Now, the first verse, or the very first sentence says, oh, how I love your law, how I love your word. And when I come to passages like this, I think because I came to Christ and my understanding of the word happened later in life, I, I, I still, in many ways, I, I hear the old gunner. And I read something like this and I think, this is just weird. Like, I remember being not Christian going, how, how come? Well, I didn't really, it took me a while to understand that Christians really like the Bible. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and again, I love Catholics, but in the Catholic Church, it wasn't like we drug our Bibles everywhere. Like, we didn't even, I, I, I don't think I even owned a Bible in the Catholic Church. We would go, we would do our stuff, and then we, like, we would go home, and, and then suddenly, as an adult, when my friends started nagging me to go to church, and I'd show up, and it's like, I, it, it didn't take me long to figure out that these Protestants, like, packed their big Bibles, they, like, toted them everywhere they go. It was, like, part of the gear and, you know, I failed my first time finding a Bible. Like, I'm like, okay, I got to fit in. Like, I just feel so weird not having a Bible. I went and bought a Bible. Then my first Bible study, the guy says, open up to such and such. And I started opening up. I'm like, where's such and such? And I wasn't going to ask for help. But then my friend, like, leaned over to help me. And he kind of chuckled. He's like, you realize you have, like, a devotional book. This isn't, like, even a Bible. Like, it was, like, a New Testament-sided devotional. I'm like, 
oh man, you mean this isn't, doesn't have like the Old Testament stuff in it? And he's like, no man, why don't you go back to Barnes and Noble and try again, which I did to make sure it actually said like Bible on it, you know, with all of the books. And I realized that in my journey, in, in my affection for the word of God has grown. Back in the military, when I wasn't walking with the Lord, I would find myself, you know, in various places around the world, but in the United States in particular, I, I would kind of be lonely, maybe had a few drinks in me, and there was like that drawer next to the bed with the Gideon Bible. And it would always kind of, I'd be drawn to it. I'd, I'd open it up, I'd kind of flip through it, and, and it couldn't make any sense of it. But there was like this sort of this, this draw to it. And then eventually when I became a Christian and I started seeing like, man, people like actually read the Bible and the whole, the, the understanding of what it means to be a Christian is found within the pages of the Bible. And I have all these questions. So I'm going to answer these questions and I'm just going to read through the Bible. And if I read through the Bible, all my questions will be answered. And I started on this journey of reading through, I, you know, I bought a one year Bible and, and, you know, three years later I got through it. And, uh, and I started to, to learn about God and what he'd revealed. And, and through that journey, my, my love for him increased. And I didn't end up in seminary thinking, oh, I was called into the ministry. I, I kind of started seminary or Bible college mainly because I wanted to, to, to know more about the word. And it's like marriage. I mean, when I first met Anna, like we first met, like it wasn't, like that we knew, oh, hey, we're going to be married and we're going to spend the rest of our lives with each other. It's like, hey, this girl's kind of, I like her. She's, she seems kind of nice. And then we kind of, you know, slowly started meeting. And then we, you know, our, our first sort of like get together was over, you know, Mexican food. And I remember like walking on, I think I really like this girl. She likes Mexican food and Jesus. And uh, this was like our two things that we had in common. Outside of that, we were very, very different and still are. But then eventually we got married. And I thought I really loved her on the wedding day. Like I thought I really loved her on the wedding day. But I realize now in our 11th year of marriage, man, I barely even knew her on her wedding day. Like my love for her at, at 11 years in marriage is far deeper and, and it, than it was then. And I love like the Bibles that I've had over the years, and in this passage in particular, there's something that I'd highlighted from 11 years ago. And it's like a reminder of how God kind of used this text in my own life. And I have these mile markers in my, the Bible and how the text has, has been a, like a, a display of God's leading. And so now when I open the Bible, I come to this text. And I re- I'm like, oh, I remember when the Lord was leading me to the ministry and I had no clue. But our, our love for his word, it doesn't, like when you first start coming to church or you first start investigating Christianity, the Bible's a stranger to you and God's a stranger to you. And then you sort of get introduced to one another and you take a little bit at a time and you start to work your way through it. And then you learn more about God and, and what he's revealed about himself through his word. And then you kind of become friends. And then you, over the course of years, this, this passion develops And so when we open this text, the person writing this, likely King David, had been walking with the Lord for a long time. And so when he writes this, he's spent many years walking with the Lord, developing this passion. And my prayer is that all of us 
that, you know, yeah, through Sundays is a, is a great place that you're in a church where the Bible's taught and your, your, your love for the Lord is developed and nurtured through the teaching of the word and that you would start reading the Bible on your own and that you would, you would develop this. And he says, the second half, it is my meditation all the day. And when this was written, see, we live in an, in an era when all of us have the scriptures in abundance. Then it was like there were a, a handful of copies that were kept in the synagogue and they would or certain people, they would go and they would memorize. And we kind of joke in our culture that, oh, they'd memorize this whole psalm. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. And it's not that they were so much better than us. It's that we've been so dumbed down in our capacity to think and to memorize. And so they would go there, they would study the word, but they didn't have Bibles to read. We're blessed by so many men and women who have been burned at the cross and given their lives so that we would have this translation in our language. And so they would go out from the the, the synagogue, the teaching, and they would ponder the words. And when Anne and I first met and we started we, in hindsight, we were dating, but back then we weren't dating. We were just like, just friends, you know. And, but then I deployed to the Middle East. And it's like, man, I like just wanted to like spend time with her to talk to her. Thankfully, I had free phone calls back to the States and she was a receptionist at a church. So we'd be able to talk. But, but the meditation of my heart, I couldn't just stop thinking about her because I loved her so much. And as he loves his word, as the psalmist loves God's word, his meditation, the things that are guiding his day, he's thinking about the word. This is why memorization is so important, because memorization, the process of memorizing, forces us to, to place it into our, into our hearts, to, to contemplate what's being uh, said to us, what's being spoken to us. And, and, and as you read it and you ponder, God begins to kind of like ping you with it and say, hey, what are you doing? Doesn't my word say to do this and shouldn't you go this direction? So he loves this, this stanza, this, this mem of the Hebrew as, as it would, every letter would begin with the letter M in the Hebrew. The, the theme, I love your law, I meditate upon it. And, and why does he love it so much? He's going to give three things in the next three verses dealing with like wisdom, understanding, and insight. And he says that you're, your commandments, your word, make me wiser than my enemies. And I love, like, we, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through Samuel and, and whatever chapter, what chapter? Rick would know what chapter we're in. 21. So was it 20 we did last week? So 20. I taught it, and I don't even know what chapter. The very end of the chapter, 19, it talks about, like, that David, who likely wrote this, it says that he just continued to advance, and everybody loved him because the, the wisdom that he displayed and his just faithfulness, he, he excelled. And he writes here, if this was him, that his commandments, the fact that he, he meditated upon the law and then he applied it to his life, this made him wiser than his enemies. He says in verse 99, for they are ever mine, referring to the commandments. Verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers. That you'd sit through class, and if you're in secular college or schools, like it's not uncommon that they could be, with all of their degrees, be speaking total foolishness. And it's not to say that there's any like disrespectfulness. There's, you're supposed to respect your elders and, and to 
to give honor. But he's sitting there going, I have more insight because I follow the word that I understand what you've revealed. And that, you know, common sense isn't common anymore. And he said, I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. And the longer I live, the more I've come to realize that maturity has nothing to do with how old you are. I know plenty of elderly people that are just as immature as 16-year-olds. And then there are some young people that are just what I refer to as like old souls. Like, it's like, what is about you? Like, how do you have this wisdom at like at 13, 14, 15? And David says that I've meditated upon your word and your testimonies. They're my, they're my meditation because I focus on your word. I focus on you. You've given me this wisdom that makes me far exceed those that are older because I've observed your precepts. And these three verses, what I see is that it's not just about head knowledge. We don't come to the word with this to be intellectually puffed up. Like I, I read very little about the mind. I mean, there definitely is in the mind in the Bible. But this heart, this area of the heart, this that it would go into your heart and soul and that it would transform who you are. James one twenty two says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. And so there's this principle of this guy as he's as he's taking the word, he loves the word. It's not just going into his noggin. It's going into his noggin and it's affecting the noggin. That's a technical term for brain. Just it's like, sorry, I, I started speaking Navy to you guys, you know. But it goes into his head and it just doesn't stay there. He looks at his world and as he navigates life, he says, this is what God's word says. This is how it's going to play out in circumstances. He says, I've trained or I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. This this idea of path that he says, you know what? This picture all through this text that life is like this path that you're on. And with every step, there's about a hundred different breakoffs that you can go. And he's navigating life and he wants to stay on the path of the Lord. And he recognizes that his flesh is so evil and he's so torn to make the wrong decision that he literally like hog ties his feet so that he couldn't make the wrong path. How do we stay on the right path? How do we stay on this journey? It's difficult. Earlier, one of the verses. It's kind of upset that Rick got to teach on it. Because I so wanted to teach on it. But, but in my journey of, of coming to Christ and, and trying to work out how does my faith play into my life? I, I was very much on two tracks, two paths. And verse 9 of Psalm 119 convicted me shaped me and it says how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word so we're told that hey if you want to live your life in purity and walking with the lord how do you do that according to god's word and this psalmist this this man he says that he's restrained his feet how do we Journey on this these path of choices. We're not robots that God's put in this chip in us and said, you will live according to my law. You will just go through. There's no decision to be made in his sovereignty and his love for us. He's given us this ability to make choices to to decide. Are we going to live with him or are we going to walk away from him? Sometimes the path of righteousness comes like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. 
Sometimes you just got to run away to avoid circumstances that you're likely to stumble in. First Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So often this passage is used for a saying that is really not biblical, that God won't give you more than you can handle. This isn't dealing with life circumstances. This is dealing with temptation. Like it says that God, whatever temptation, to our propensity to sin and to, and to go down that path, God will provide you a way out. It says there, you haven't been tempted beyond what you are able. And sometimes the way out of temptation is simply to run. It, it, maybe you're not with Potiphar's wife and you, ha- you don't have to literally run out of the room and leave your cloak, which sends you up in prison. But you might have to restrain your feet. For me, it's like, I can't hang out with these guys who are my best friends because when I get with them, they're like my kryptonite. And I don't know how it happens, but the next day I know I'm drunk. Well, I know how it happens. But I don't know where did my restraint go. So, so in my journey, I had to say, I can't hang out with these friends of mine because I don't have the gift of moderation. Now I can hang out with them, but, but in my journey, I had to like figure out, Lord, where am I stumbling? Okay, I see that when I go out on a Friday night with these guys, I end up totally hungover the next morning. So in order to avoid this so that I can focus on you, I'm going to have to bind my feet and not do that on Friday nights. Another area that's helped me in my walk with the Lord is this whole accountability that, that you, you get with people who are headed in the same direction as you, that, that have the same desire of living their lives out for the Lord. And then you meet with them, and then you pray with them, and you say, these are my struggles. No, none of us are perfect. These are the areas that I'm really struggling with. And then you have friends that say, hey, let me ask you some hard questions. And I've learned with guys, like every men's group or guy accountability there's always a last question that I always ask. Are you lying to me? <laughs> because accountability is only as good as we are truthful. And so I've had dear brothers in the Lord who've come alongside of me that, that, that have their example of just being transparent and say, hey, I'm really struggling in this area. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? And sometimes just knowing that I'm going to meet with that brother like on Wednesday and he's going to ask me, hey, how are you doing? And then he's going to ask me if I'm lying to him. So that will help me kind of stay strong during these moments of weakness. It's like a sporting event. Like I've been getting beat up at this church soccer league. It's killing me. It's like combat every week. I'm getting too old for this. I don't recover like I used to. But I know that Saturday's coming. So it forces me because Saturday's coming that during the week I'm trying to stretch and do a little more running. Like because that day's coming, it shapes how... I live my life and accountability will do that. And this whole decision, this choice that he says, he doesn't say you've restrained my path, my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. He says, I've done this. I've made this choice. God's given him the freedom to make whatever choice he wants. And I'm reading this book by Charles Swindoll and he's describing his like leading into the ministry. And he said something that I'm going to quote from him a, a couple times today from this book. 
And he says, while God has given each individual a unique purpose to fulfill, a personalized path to follow, he also grants us the freedom to choose whether or not we walk in his way. In other words, the Lord has prepared a plan for your life, but you are not compelled to follow his design. He has gifted and nurtured you, but you don't have to follow his plan. And this idea that God lays out this choice and this psalmist, he says, I so want to walk with you, Lord, that I've restrained my feet that I may keep your commandments. If we take our hands off the steering wheel, or at least if I do, I'm going to crash and burn. Walking with the Lord requires me to be diligent, to like to pray, to read the word. And it's not necessarily easy, but I know that that's where I need to go in order to meet with the Lord and to let the Lord kind of guide me. He goes on to say, I have not turned aside from your ordinances. For you yourself, that's not a typo. Like he could have said, for you have taught me. In the Hebrew, this, this double identifying of who this person is, is of great significance to emphasize a greater meaning that you yourself have taught me. That as we open the scriptures to think that God the creator of the universe, that he is the one that guides us. That's why when we open up the Bible, like I don't just pray before I start teaching the Bible just because that's what you're supposed to do, that these are token prayers. Like it's sincerely, Lord, we need your help. Like we need your spirit to understand what this means. Will you guide us? Will you give us wisdom to navigate this text? Every time you open the Bible, you should seek him, the author who penned these words. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, I'm not going to read it, but it says that, hey, as Christians, you've received the spirit and the spirit that gives you wisdom and discernment as you as you read these things, as you navigate life. So that our guide is actually the spirit. And I can't tell you how many times I've I've preached. People say, oh, Gunner, that was a really great message. It's like, oh, dude, you don't had nothing to do with me. That the Lord uses his word and I'm just his agent. And my prayer is that anything that I say that has nothing to do with what he wants, that it would just kind of go in one ear and out the other. And the things that he wants us to hear, that he would help us to hear. It's another thing that amazes me. I'll be teaching the word and they say, oh, you said that. I'm like, I don't think I said that. Like, well, I heard, I, I got that from the word. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. I'm glad that God's word went out. Verse 102, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Like sweetness, sweeter than honey. I don't eat a whole lot of honey. It's sweet, but I do like ice cream. And in this weather, I don't know what day it was, but we were like melting and I wanted ice cream. I like, got all the kids. I'm like, hey, let's go. And from Costco, we just stocked up on the Hershey syrup stuff. So I'm like dousing the vanilla ice cream and the syrup. And man, it was so good that by the end, it's like, I need some water. It's so sweet and so tasty. And it felt so good. And I'm probably going to have some more today now that I'm talking about it since I'm hot right now. But when he thinks about the word of God, it makes him, he's like, it's sweet. It's not unpleasant. It's not bitter. It's not a bunch of like do's and don'ts that are trying to make our life miserable. It's a book that gives us wisdom so that we could live our lives. And when we live our lives according to the precepts of, of God, 
Like in just practical terms, life goes better. It's funny how it happens. He says, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Literally, I hate every false path. This is the first time of two in this today's text that we see this word hate. Just seems like such a strong word. And and what I think he's saying, he's saying that as I come to God's word, as God instructs him and gives him wisdom and he makes the right decision of walking with the Lord. But there's all of these detour paths that are so tempting. They get, get him off track, these false paths that lead to destruction. He hates those. It's funny with the Unshackled series when they did that. The first thing that always like it kills me, not that there's anything wrong with the King James Version, but I like I did it not come to the Lord through the King James Version. Like if anything, the King James Version kept me away from coming to Christ. Like I'm like, it makes no sense. The Bible's boring. It's like, well, the Bible's not boring. I just don't understand King James. And so in the Unshackled thing, they're an old school radio program. So every Bible verse that I said was important to me. They translate, they use the King James version. So I'm like listening to the story of my life. I'm like, this is boring, man. I'm like, I, this is so not my story. I was an NIV guy back then. You know, it's like made sense to me. But one of the verses they use kind of stood out to me. I'm like, did I tell him that was one of my verses? And it was Proverbs 14, 12. And the guy's like describing my life being a total mess. He says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man that leads to destruction. I'm like, wait, what, what does it say? But it says, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And, and, and the proverb says, like, you know, from man's perspective, through our sensory, through our wisdom of our own or our flesh, there are things that we think are wise, the right way, a good path to journey on. But in the end, it leads to death. And our culture is so much in the battle of God, a, a, a conflict between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And it's, not a, it's, it's, it's difficult to navigate these waters. And so when the psalmist says, therefore I hate every false way, he know, they're so, they seem to be wise, but they lead to death. And he just wants to focus on God's precepts. And he goes to verse 105, the verse that had such an impact in my life. I um, I think it was around 2000, maybe 2001. I had just completed the, my reading through the Bible. And I had this just overwhelming feeling like I was supposed to do more. And the church I was going to, they kept advertising like the School of E, which is the School of Evangelism, like a six-week course. I'm like, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Like, but I got this whole, this problem this whole being an active duty Navy SEAL is kind of like getting in my way of like, how do I take a six-week course when I'm traveling all over the world? And, and I, I was like, I don't have, I had, I was like at this dead end. Like I'd read through the word. I wanted more, but it was like, I was stuck. How could I go forward? And I, I'd become so frustrated because I felt like God was leading me. Sub, I had no clue where, but I felt like God had me on this path and I was supposed to take this next step. But I wanted to know what like the next 50 steps were because if I, I have to know where I'm going in order to make the plans to get there, like I'm a planner and it just makes sense. And I finally got a meeting with a pastor 
And I, and I met with this executive pastor at the church, and I said, I kind of explained my struggle. And he smiled at me. He's like, brother, the Lord's not calling you to the school of E. I'm like, how do you know? He's like, you're an active duty Navy SEAL. Like, I know he's not calling you there. You, you can't go. So obviously he's not calling you there. And he, he smiled. I'm like, you're being way too relaxed and happy about this turmoil I'm going through. He's like, why don't you open up the Bible? I said, oh, yeah, let's do that. And he took me to 105 in Psalm 119. He says, listen, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And he's like, brother, you're looking for a fog light out in front of you, and God will not give you a fog light. He's like, just be faithful with what you're doing, and then he'll begin to, like, crack open the door. And in the, the clarity of, like, the historical context, you, you know, exi- electricity didn't always exist. And certainly during this time, like, when the sun went down, it got dark, and then you just didn't pop on all the floodlights. They had torches. And then when you use fire as your means of lighting at night, you have about six feet of lightness. And then beyond that, it's like utter darkness. And you can't see what's beyond that. So he says, your word is a light, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And so it's just trust God to be faithful to take the next step. We live in a dark world and we can sense God leading us sometimes in in certain directions and almost never do we have clarity for for the future charles swindoll in his book another quote he says a clear sense of calling rarely comes with a detailed plan in most cases god supplies only one detail the next step i've noticed that's where a lot of people become paralyzed amen just take this next step don't worry about where you're in just trust god take him at his word he says, your, your word is a light, lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn I will conform it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. There's this determination that this commitment to the word, he's like, Lord, I'm going to follow your word. I'm not going to worry about my external circumstances. He says, I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Things are tough. He can't see beyond the difficulty of his circumstances, but he reminds himself that God's word is a lamp unto his path, and all he has to focus on is the right then, the immediate. He's saying, Lord, revive me according to your word. Accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. This verse kind of caught my attention. Another thing I thought was weird starting to come to church. See, when I was raised Catholic, and not that I was really raised, I mean, I, went to, I was raised Catholic, but I wasn't like the A student in the Catholic Church. I was more like the, the D minus when D minus was still passing sort of thing. Like, and we would go to the early service where they didn't have music because it was shorter that way. And so then I start coming to Christian churches. It's like this whole like singing stuff beforehand can get really weird. It's like, like what? Are you, everybody's like happy, like raising their hands, swaying. What's this all about? And it was a really a strange thing to me. Yeah, you know, we were getting ready on Halloween. I'm super excited. We're doing a Keith Green. You guys that don't know who Keith Green is, YouTube him, Wikipedia him. He was just like a musical genius as a young kid. Was in the secular world, then he became a Christian, and I think he he wrote some of the most amazing worship songs. He, um, he, uh, he died in a plane wreck with one of his kids and, and, um, you know, I asked Melody Green to come to share, but we're not big enough. I tried and, uh, 
thought I'd go for it. And he, for, for like at night, the kids and I, we've been watching a lot of his music because I want to kind of help teach them the songs before our Halloween dress-up party and Keith Green worship night that we're going to do. And, uh, and he starts by saying, hey, we're about to worship one of his videos. And he's like, for those of you who aren't Christians, you're going to start seeing some weird stuff. You're going to see people raising their hands and closing your eyes and asking yourself, how, how are they going to see when the teacher calls on them? You know, like, and he's, and I'm like, amen, brother, it's a little weird. But see, worship isn't just about like singing songs. It's we're singing to the Lord. And so much of worship is preparing our hearts to receive his instruction. And here the psalmist says, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. And then teach me your ordinances. By the second service, I'm normally pretty warmed up with God, but sometimes I'm like not such a morning person. And there are times I come to this first service and I'm just like, oh man, I need a cup of coffee. Like, come on, like wake up, Gunner. Man, I got to get going. And then the music starts going. I'm like, huh. And then it's like, especially today is like by like that third song, it's like, Oh, I'm waking up to the things of the Lord and I begin singing him. And it's like he's priming my heart through worshiping and focusing on him. That then my heart comes to this position to where I could be taught by him through his word. And I'm learning just as much up here as you guys are sitting down there. Probably more so. And he says, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, Lord, and teach me your ordinances. He understands that this is a relationship that he's communicating to God and God's communicating back to him. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. People are trying to kill him. He doesn't know from step to step whether he'll lose his life. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. I love this. There's all of these people, but he said, no matter what's coming after me, even though the wicked are laying snares, that your word is the joy of my heart. And I've inclined my heart, another decision. It doesn't say I've inclined my mind. I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes, that I'm going to live it out forever to the end. Then we get to our another hate in verse 113. This one was a little bit more difficult. The other one's like, okay, he hates the path, like the philosophies that lead to destruction, even though they seem wise. This one says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. It says he hates people. Like, what's this all about? And this has been like the, one of, of all weeks that I'm kind of studying this with the whole Chick-fil-A thing. Not that we're going to really talk about that. But there's been a lot of like discussion. And I've had a lot of good discussions with people kind of like, as, as a Christian who stands for something, does that mean that you hate somebody or... And, and I'm looking at this and saying, well, I hate those who are double-minded. But the, the, the issue is double-minded is, is hypocrisy. Is a person who says, oh, I praise you, Lord. I'm all for you. But then doing other stuff uh, that's not related to the Lord. Well, a person who is double-minded. And instead of talking about others that I hated, I'm going to talk about myself that I hated for being double-minded. 
My big wake-up call with the walk for the Lord, I was going to church on Tuesday nights because there's free pizza, that Bible study. I was enjoying the Word of God. Then Sundays, I was going to church maybe a couple times on a Sunday. And then Monday, I was doing Monday night football and getting wasted. Tuesday, I knew where the dollar beer spot. No, not Tuesday. That was Bible study. Then there was Wednesdays and Thursdays. I was all of the other nights of the week. I was in the bars cruising PB. And I found myself on a Friday night with my buddy who is from Atlanta, drunk in Danny's, the seal bar. And we look up to the TV and we see that the Padres are playing in Atlanta. And next thing we know, we were able to pull off a flight to Atlanta Drank the whole way to Atlanta, got into our hotel, went to the Padres game the next time, drinking the whole time. By Saturday night, I was starting to get kind of convicted. Sunday was coming, and I couldn't keep up with my friend. This is my kryptonite friend, that every time I got around him, I would end up just wasted. And so we went to the Padres games. They lost all of the games. It was, you know, typical Padres. That was a whole nother heartache. But we're coming back from Atlanta on Delta Airlines. There's a whole church group behind us going on a missions trip. I'm sober. I'm, my friend is just like irate and anti-Christian. And he's getting furious at the guy who's a pastor talking to this young lady about her relationship with the Lord. And he starts yelling stuff. That if it was post 9-11, he would have been arrested out when the plane landed. And it was just a rough, like, five-hour flight. We finally landed. And I remember walking out of the terminal and my friend saying, if I hear that guy say one more thing about Jesus, I'm going to punch him in his face. And I was like, man, you're, like, offending me now. And he looked at me and he said words that were like a knife going into the core of my being and twisting. He said, man, I believe just like you. I believe in God and everything. But this whole Jesus thing is just ridiculous. And at that moment, my hypocrisy, my double-mindedness had so, like, just bubbled up in my face that I was broken before the Lord. And I hated it. In that moment, I remember kind of, like, quitting. Not so much quitting, but telling God, I'm like, I can't go on walking down these two paths any longer. And I don't see how I can walk with you. I don't have the strength to pull it off. And so... I'm going to have to just go on the other path because I can't go on claiming to be a Christian. And it was in that moment of brokenness, that hatred for this double-mindedness, that God grabbed a hold of me. And I want us to go over to the First Corinthians chapter 5. There's, I, I, with the whole Chick-fil-A thing and this hatred, and I, I don't really want to talk about Chick-fil-A. <sighs> And in some ways, there's like this great tension in my brain from Scripture. And I think a lot of it's due to being an American. Because we live, we live in an age or in a, in a culture where our authorities have said to us that we live in a government that's made up of the people, by the people, and for the people. That was Lincoln during the Gettysburg Address. And I'm no historian. I don't know if he like quoted that from somewhere else, but that's where I like got. <laughs> we don't have to go into history yet. But 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 so submitting to our authorities means that we have the freedom to shape our government. That we can we can vote. We can have a voice. We can shape how our culture is. 
And so as Christians, obviously, we have values. And so we want to vote values. But I don't think there's many, if any other governments in human history, certainly not during biblical times, where this was an option. It was like a top-down authoritative thing. And so sometimes by our voicing our values in government, we think that we can put on religious principles on our culture to, to make our world more Christianese. And I, it's a losing battle ultimately. And I'm obviously hot and tired because my brain's like skipping cycles. And in, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says stuff here because I think our culture is becoming more and more like the Corinth culture. There was all kind of issues, worldly. And in verse 1, I'm just to kind of ease us into this, it says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't exist even among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. And so within the church, the culture had bled into the church. He says, you've become so arrogant. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. But, but he's describing this problem. And he'd previously written him a letter of correcting them that didn't make the... It, it wasn't canonized. It was lost. God did away with it. I don't know if he was so irate or what happened. But in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he says, I told you not to hang out with immoral people. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or, and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He said, when I said not to hang out with those that are immoral, I wasn't saying like those that aren't of Christ, that those ha- haven't professed Christ, because where would you go? The whole world is evil and sinful. You can't isolate yourselves from the world. He said, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler or not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourself. And so that passage kind of giving clarity, like those that aren't with Christ or don't know Christ, they don't need to be cleaned like you clean a fish before they're caught. They're in the world. They don't know Jesus. We're not to restrain their behavior like through modification of religion. What they need is Jesus. But those who have professed Christ, now there's, there's another story. If I say Jesus is my Lord, yet I'm walking in sin, it's love that a brother comes to me and says, hey, brother, the word says this. You've taken Christ on as your savior. You need like you need to pray about this and seek the Lord, like ask him what you're doing. Is it right? And I believe that in Psalm 119, when he talks about hating the double minded, it's this it's this duplicity. This falseness that we hear from those that aren't of the church saying, oh, I don't like Christian because they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Anybody ever heard that one before? And, and, and hypocrisy is different than a Christian, which is all of us, who is not perfect. Hypocrisy is when you put on this front that you're perfect and then on the side you have this whole other world. That you would deny, that you would say, oh, I don't have any issues. 
That's totally different than saying, you know what? I love the Lord. He's paid it all for me. He's taken my sin and done away with it. I'm still struggling, man. I got all kinds of struggles that I'm dealing with. That's not hypocrisy. That's being human and and learning to walk with Jesus and, and helping him to refine us. And, and we're going to see in this stanza, this, this kind of this unpacking, that, that this double-mindedness, that there, there's some things that I think that this author struggled with, and he didn't want to fall off the path. And, and these things were just causing him great anger. But he goes on to say, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. I, I don't know if Corey Tenboom used this verse for writing her book, The Hiding Place. She was a Dutch Christian that held Jews uh, to protect them from the Auschwitz. She eventually was arrested, and many of her family were killed during the, the concentration camps. And the title of her book was The Hiding Place. But and so there's this refuge that, that I love your law. You are my hiding place and, place and shield. I wait for your word. It says, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I have regard for your statutes continually. And so I see the psalmist saying, get away from me, evildoers. Help, Lord, help me to stay connected to your word. Don't let me be ashamed of my hope. And I read this and I think of the young gunner in his Christian life trying to figure out how to, to live in these two worlds of the SEAL teams into my faith and, and to recognize that there, there are situations that I just couldn't go because when I got around these situations, I would stumble and I would fall. And I wanted, I so wanted to like just live for the Lord. But in these, these areas of stumbling, my weakest spots, those are areas that I actually, those are like my friends. And that my shame for the Lord, like, like that, it was like embarrassing. Like my friend, he was a missionary kid, and he, the Lord used him in a great way in my life. And what, namely what he did, we were in our platoon space of like 14 guys, totally unchristian. And there he is in the middle of the space with his Bible, reading. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're reading your Bible in the middle of like, what if somebody walks in? He's like, so what? This guy is the closest thing to like, like David that I know, the real David. He's like, what do you mean? I can read my Bible. What are they going to say? I'm like, wait, I've been like hiding myself in the bathroom with the stall door shut, like for a quiet time because I'm so like, like embarrassed for what do they say? And then he's like, wow, you can just like, so then like, then I started this spiritual discipline of reading my Bible in public, but really it wasn't reading my Bible in public. It was just opening my Bible in public because I was so like terrified. I couldn't focus, but I'm like, I'm just going to sit here and just with my Bible open, look like I'm reading, but not reading going, what are they thinking? Are they doing something to me? Oh man, what am I, can I not just stop with this Lord? But it was like this step of faith, like that, no, that I wouldn't be ashamed of the Lord, that this is where the hope is. He goes on to say, verse 18, you have rejected those who wandered from your statues for their deceitfulness is useless, literally is falsehood for their deceitfulness is falsehood. You've removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Now, these are some harsh words. He says, you've rejected all those who wander from your statues. For their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked 
of the earth like dross. Dross is the impurities that rise up when gold is being boiled, that they'd skim it away. He's saying that those that depart from the Lord, this is like 90% of our world. And I think this is what makes Christians so passionate for the loss. And sometimes ah, there's no just, it's not a cookie cutter approach. There's a time to confront people that don't know Christ with Christ. There's another time to take a more docile approach and, and over time. And Christians, if you're here as a non-believer, like I had my friend who nagged me and nagged me and nagged me. He drove me crazy with inviting me to church. I couldn't stand it. But then as I become a Christian, I've realized that the motivation is that the Christian, when they come to understand what God's world has revealed, sometimes our love for others can come off as like offensive and being critical of them. But really our motivation is we want them to come to experience the life that we have. I love Paul, and I think this should be our heart. If you'd go over to me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 begins Paul's teaching towards Israel, his brethren. Paul was called to the Gentiles, but he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And man, I, I like we're a lot of uh, American Christians, man, we want to like make our voice and, and change our culture and redeem it for our forefathers. And, and I'm all for, I'm all for voting and doing that stuff, but I don't know any American Christians. And I say this with conviction that would go as far as Paul went. Paul, as he opens up, speaking of his Jewish brothers, listen to his words. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants of the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, who, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. The point, Paul says, I wish my Israeli brethren would come to Christ so much so that if, if they would all come to Christ, I would be willing to go to hell in exchange for them. I don't know many Americans saying that have such passion for their fellow American countrymen that pray like, Lord, I would be willing to be separated for you if they would turn their hearts. Like this is a love that... That is sacrificial. It's like Christ's love for the church. That he gave his life for us. And I think that this is the psalmist. He says he wants to walk with the Lord. He recognizes what God's going to do. And this is what creates his passion. He ends with this. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. This is a great place to end. He ends with the fear of God, which doesn't bode well in our culture. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 1, 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs 9, 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs fifteen thirty three: the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom and before honor comes humility. 
And I think that this is the starting point. We recognize who God is. He is holy. It, uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, love, love. But it does say he's holy, holy, holy. His holy separates us from a sinful creation, but he wants to bridge that gap to Christ. We need to recognize him for who he is. And then the fear of the Lord kind of puts everything into perspective. And from there, as we fear the Lord, as we come to understand who he is, it, it's like, well, Lord, I fear you. What have you said to us? Well, his, his word, the scriptures have revealed to us what he wants us to know about him. And then we come to the, oh, how I love your law. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There's a video out there that I saw a few weeks ago. Powerful. Steve Saint. For those of you that don't know Steve Saint, his dad was Nate Saint. Nate Saint was a missionary down to uh, South America uh, to reach the Aka people, the most, one of the most violent people, people groups from a sociological standpoint. They, they're constantly killing each other, and everybody that's tried to go in there has been killed by them. And they said, we need to go reach them for Christ. Sociologists said that this, tri- these tri- this tribal group, the Aka Indians, are going to be extinct within a matter of years because they're killing each other so rapidly. So these five guys back in the 50s go down there. Nate Saint was one of the, he was a pilot that kind of got to this remote tribe. They go there, they're, they're trying to build this relationship. All five of them, through some rumor that was started, were basically speared to death. There's the movie, The End of the Spear, we showed it at church, we'll probably show it again. These guys were all killed trying to reach these guys. After they were killed, the wives said, we're going to stay and try to reach these people. And Steve Saint, who's the son, as a little kid, he says, I remember going there. And it's like, yeah, your uncle killed my dad. And then the kid said, well, his uncle killed my dad. And so he fit in with the tribe because they'd all had dads that had been killed. This whole tribe has come to Christ. They've given their lives to these tribal people. And about two, I don't know, it was, it was probably a few months ago, Steve Saint was in a plane crash. Uh, like a, one of those light glider planes trying to find new ways to get into these unknown people groups. His plane crashed. He's paraplegic in his hospital bed. He makes a video. It's a seven-minute video. I've posted on my Facebook if you are interested. And at the very end, his words are just like you can barely hear him. I get tears in my eyes thinking about his passion of commitment, of just going all out for the Lord to keep his word. And in his hospital bed, what he says is, let's give him everything. No holds barred. Nothing held back. You know, he only expects to get, he only expects to give him what we have. For some of us, that's not very much at certain points in our life. It's enough. And Father, we pray. Lord, like as the psalmist writes in his words, Father, that he just wants to journey on your path in righteousness, that he would keep your commandments. Father, I pray that you would help us to get a a greater understanding of who you are that we would get a glimpse of your majesty, your holiness. Lord, you're an awesome God. I pray that you would give us a a, a dose of a, a, a healthy fear of you. Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you. 
that we would be still, that we would listen to your voice through your word. Father, we pray that, Lord, for each person here, Lord, we're all in different places of our journey on our path and our walk with you. But Lord, we pray that you would flame that passion for the love of your word. Lord, may we love your word. Father, help us to to cling to it, that it would be a light unto our path. Father, may we take it to heart. May we meditate upon it. May we walk with you all the days of our life. Father, help us to be lights in this dark world. Father, increase our love for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't know you. That we would have that Christ-like selflessness, Lord, in trying to reach them. We thank you that he came, that he gave all for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk with you all the days of our life. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.